isn't it time somebody finally heard you? I mean, really, you know, podcasting is one of the most powerful mediums out there for delivering a message, whether it's telling stories, having fun, or maybe especially promoting your business. But hey, you're not a sound engineer, so how do you get it going? Buzzsprout has everything you need, including a great library of tutorials and resources, recommendations for gear, and a set of tools to help you get listed on every major podcast platform. You don't have to be a broadcast or sound engineering ninja to get up and running in just a couple hours. So just do it. Let the world hear what you have to say. Buzzsprout is the easy way, and here's the easy path to their door. Go to bit.ly forward slash start casting. Again, that's b as in boy, it.ly forward slash start casting and sign up. When you use this link, you'll also get a $20 Amazon gift card. How nice is that? Don't just think about podcasting. Go to bit.ly forward slash start casting today and get your voice out there. If you're a dog lover like me and are looking to adopt or foster from a fully vetted placement organization with actual vets on the team, no pun intended, and you live in the Pacific Northwest, you need to know about Must Love Dogs Northwest. Must Love Dogs is a 501c3 nonprofit, all-volunteer organization dedicated to ending pet homelessness. They work to rehome dogs that are abused, neglected, and homeless, or about to be homeless, and those in shelter settings. Must Love Dogs offers spay-neuter services, microchip assistance, training in lieu of surrender, and provides compassion grants for those in need. So, if it's time to bring a new dog into your heart and home as a full-time family member or foster a homeless pup, Or if you want to donate or support a fundraising event or volunteer, give Must Love Dogs a call at 844-364-7690. Again, that's 844-364-7690. Or visit them online at mustlovedogsnw.org. Again, that website, mustlovedogsnw.org. This is Drew Zagorski. You're listening to You Don't Say. Thanks for that. And don't forget to follow and review us wherever you listen to podcasts or at youdontsay.net and share with your family, friends, and everyone else you know. So here's the story. It was said that in Bridgeport, the neighborhood on Chicago's south side that I grew up in, had a church on every block and a tavern on every corner. And that's literally not really far from the truth. But the thing that saying doesn't include? Funeral homes. Those were usually on the opposite or kitty corner from the taverns, so you were covered cradle to grave with a place you could go to pray for your immortal soul in between. Each church was kind of a feeder system for the funeral home on the corner. For the church my family attended, St. Mary of Perpetual Help, it was the Premierski and Son Funeral Home. Almost all of our immediate and extended family funerals ran through Premierski's. St. Mary's also had an elementary school attached to it, as most of the neighborhood churches did. The son of Pamirsky and I went to that elementary school, though he was a couple years ahead of me. Taju was his name. Yep, we called him by the proper Polish version of Tad, which was short for Thaddeus, or in Polish, Tadeusz. Taj took over the business from his dad, and it's still going strong, so good for him, I say. But back in the day in school, I always remembered him as being pretty, um pretty stiff. Of course, I wasn't palling around with him because he was older, but, you know, he just seemed pretty staid and reserved, pretty undertakerish like his dad. There were rumors even that he slept in a casket, among other things. I mean, you know how cruel kids can be. 
Shit, that had to be kind of hard on the poor guy. I mean, when he might ask kids for a sleepover to his house, they lived right above the funeral home. I can't imagine how many times he must have gotten shot down on that. I mean, what kid wants to sleep in a place where they're right over a bunch of dead bodies? And you know, every undertaker I'd encountered in my life since then seemed just like Taju. Stiff, overly formal, low-key, and whether they were or not, when you shook their hand, well, that hand always felt kind of cold and clammy. But maybe that was just all in my head. Whatever, they all came across as kind of creepy. That is, until a few years back when I did some branding work for an independent funeral home. The owner of the home was a pretty funny guy, and yeah, he lived right there in the building with his family. On one visit, he asked me if I like prunes. Yeah, says I. He smirks and gets up, says, cool, I'll be right back. And then he goes to the quote-unquote elevator. You know, the one where the stretcher takes the body down to the prep room. He comes back and tosses a bag to me. I looked at it and I asked what preservatives were in it, and we had a pretty good laugh about it. Then, I'll never forget an ad I did for him. We had a photo of a greasy, leisure-suit-clad, used-car-looking guy with the caption that said, such a deal. The ad was based on my research in the field. I went around to several different funeral homes, and I got to tell you, it was just like walking onto a car lot. All I could think to myself was, man, if I had to do this for real, this would not feel good. Anyway, the Such a Deal ad generated a lot of interest for him. And we worked together for several years after that, and every time I met with him, I could count on more than a couple laughs. Fast forward a few years. I'm at one of my local chamber's networking events. The spotlight speaker was an undertaker. You know what? Her pitch was really funny. The raffle prize she gave away was a t-shirt. It was black with flames on it, and it said, your last chance for a smoking hot body, which promoted their cremation services. Well, I mean, how can you not want to put your lividity-ridden, stiff, gas-emitting corpse into her hands, right? And over the past couple of years, as I've gotten to know her a little bit, she's always ready with a great one-liner about the funeral business. Plus, she and her husband have a killer Harley-Davidson hearse. You can see it on the episode cover of this podcast and at threadgillmemorial.com under the services tab by clicking on the last ride in the drop-down menu. You'll find that link in the episode notes. Deborah Threadgill and her husband, Ron, met at, wait for it, a funeral. It was love at first sight. They married a few months later. In 1999, Rob put his toe into the funeral business pond. He learned a business and seemed to be a natural at it. Because they had such a different take on it, their friends kept telling them they should go out on their own. And then in 2007, Deborah and Ron opened their own funeral home, Threadgill's Memorial Services. Deborah and Ron are raising the bar in terms of serving the needs of families and always looking for innovative ways to celebrate lives. So today I'm talking with Deborah Threadgill, and I'm told Ron may join us as well. We'll be pulling back the curtain on the funeral business and hearing the story of how she and Ron are changing the way folks say goodbye. But don't worry, Deborah's story isn't spooky, though she is a little kooky and altogether ooky. So joining me today is Deborah Threadgill, and as advertised, Ron is also riding along. Uh, so welcome to both of you, and thank you for your time today and having this conversation. So. What I'd like to do is just kind of jump in, looking back at the beginning, you know, we go back to 87 or 88, Deborah, you have a degree in sociology, you know, you're out there. What, what were you doing at that time before this is pre pre Ron? Well, I was a probation officer in New Jersey. I worked at the Dilettante chocolates in Seattle. I was working as a group home 
in California. So I have a varied background. Okay. Actually, funeral, the funeral industry found us. We weren't okay. out So you're at a funeral. And right. so talk to me about that. Did did Ron hit on you? Did you hit on him? Who did the hit? And what, what does well, it look like to get picked up at a funeral? So, so, Actually, it was the widow of the deceased who played matchmaker. Yes. Uh, we, we had known each other years before, and uh, I moved to Seattle and then Portland and got um, informed of this uh, dear friend's death. So I drove down to California, attended the funeral, re-met Ron. Uh, like he said, they kind of set us up. They put us next to each other at the luncheon. <laughs> Sorry, and then, that's um, just kind of funny to me. Well, and actually, when I when I returned uh, among my friends, they said, uh, you know, that's going to become the hottest social activity for young single people is to go to a funeral and um, yeah. pick up your your spouse. Yeah. I mean, I get how it works at a wedding, but I, I, I was kind of wondering, Ron, what, what was the pickup line, <laughs> but I guess it was set up. So, well, it, it was kind of, but when I, this was my best friend's father who had died. Okay. okay. And, and I almost didn't get to go to the funeral because my boss wouldn't give me the day off because I was going to school and work in a convenience store. And when he said no, I called him back and said, okay, I quit. This is my best friend's father. His uh-huh. dad's only going to die once in his lifetime. I'm going. So that's how close it was to me not being there. And when I walked in, I was one of the casket bearers. And I walked in and Deborah was there. And she stood up and she had five young girls with her. And I thought, oh, my gosh, she's married and has five kids. It had Maria been Von Trapp. Yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> but it had been almost 10 years since I saw her last. Okay. So when she stood, and then when I walked up to give her a hug, I saw there was no rings. And then it dawned on me that these girls were the granddaughters of the deceased uh-huh. that Deborah was close to. And so right from then, I knew I was going to propose that very moment. And I waited about six hours. <laughs> yeah. the, the body wasn't even in the ground that long. <laughs> so, so we tell uh, people that obviously funerals were in our, were, were in our destiny. Yeah. Yeah. So now, okay. So you guys hook up and you get married, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when this all started, did either of you even joke around or were you talk about going into the funeral business ever? Or because I know, Ron, you had somebody said you had aptitude for it when you were young. Um, okay. But was this just like not even part of the equation? It wasn't even part of the equation. Okay. It wasn't even a forethought to be part of the equation. Okay. So, so you guys go about your lives, you start your family 10 years later, right? Ron, you somebody reaches out to you to get into the business, the funeral business, and you jump in as a partner. Yes, uh, it was it was a little bit staged. I was in between. I was a state planner, and I was getting my securities license, and it was very slow in the background check because I was older than most. And in that time, I needed an interim job, and I was invited to go work at a cemetery 
because they said, whatever it is, you have it and you would do well. And that was what. How did you feel about that? I mean, you're talking about an industry that you probably, you know, it has, it has some baggage around it. It was, it was different. All through high school, I walked home every day past a funeral home. And I always wondered what really goes on there. And then I say, it doesn't matter. I just want to drive a hearse. Yeah. That was my childhood fantasy, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that was quite fun thinking Uh about driving a hearse. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who probably think about like the guy where I grew up on the street that I grew up on a guy at the, that lived on the corner was, you know, a mechanic and all that kind of stuff. He, he had a hearse and, you know, he painted time is on my side on the back and it was just his joy rider. And I know people who have those. So right. even way back then I knew some people that had a hearse and it was always a, a fantasy or a dream. And just before I graduated, this was in 74, we were required to take this military equivalency test because the draft was active then. And okay. mine came back that I would be a, gr- a good funeral director, that I should consider that as a career. And of course, I was the laughing stock of my senior class because I was the only one that that came back as. Right, right. Okay, so Deborah, now he gets this opportunity to go into the funeral business. Did you go in as well? Or what were your thoughts when this whole thing came up? So we were, uh, our children were still young and uh, I would go in. We, uh, our partners, we actually got a, a building over in Southeast Portland and we lived in Beaverton. So I would get the children off to school. I would drive over. Um, I'd be there like from nine until two thirty, And I would, that was in the days when you would type, use a typewriter for the death certificates. And I would answer phones. I was not a funeral director. Um, I was just doing more of the administrative secretarial stuff so that would I could be available for the children. Although I did do the transports with Ron. And I did tell him that he was lucky that he had a wife that was such a good sport that would go around, mind going around picking up dead bodies. I have some questions about that we'll get into later. But so okay. just to kind of timeline this. So you guys are in this business for a couple of years. Then you get out of it. Mm-hmm. And and your friends, from what I understand, are like you guys are just natural at this. Um, why did you get out of it? Well, well, we had partnership issues, and okay. our our company had grown large enough, and we were pretty large for the Portland marketplace, and so that meant a lot of major investments, and that's where we started disagreeing a lot. And then there were some other issues that came up that uh, it just dissolved our partnership. Gotcha. Okay. So after a couple of years, you guys start your own uh, business, Threadgill Memorial. And was it deliberate on your side when you started the Threadgill Memorial to do things very differently? Because from an outsider looking in, you do do things very differently there. Well, when you get to know us, you'll understand why we do things differently is because we're pretty different kind of people. So it was it was kind of made sense. Uh, But but we didn't have the money to actually go out and either buy or rent a large 
um, funeral type brick and mortar mm-hmm. building. So we had to start uh, in a different way. So we licensed uh, as a funeral well, establishment. What happened, the background of it is when we had our previous funeral home with our partnership, we had several small funeral homes working through our facility for our refrigeration and our prep room, which cares for the bodies where all that ser- those services are provided. And we had smaller funeral homes subletting through us. We would do the work, they would pay our fees, and then they carried out the services for their client. So there was always this foundation of knowledge. And one day there was a death that occurred and this person absolutely required Deborah and I to be the funeral directors. And while we were licensed or I was still licensed, we had no facility. Gotcha. And these people refused to go to any funeral homes that I recommended for them. So finally, I went to the owner, said, listen, you do the, you can handle all the financial side of it. We'll donate our time. We'll serve this family and meet their needs because this is their father. And I had prearranged their funeral. So it was all paid for. And so Deborah and I are there just doing this service and programs and ushering. And everybody that came said, oh, my gosh, you're back. We're going to tell everybody we know. And Deborah trying to do business with you. Sorry. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So so Deborah and I came home and said, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? And we're pretty religious, so we spend a lot of contemplative spiritual time and through prayer. And we just got the impression this is the route. And we were open and licensed within three months, two months. And we had our first family to serve the day after we had our license. Okay. And and the way that happened, we've grown all these years word of mouth only. We don't do a lot of advertising. And several months, I was always referring six to 10 families to other funeral homes while we were out of the business. Right. So the minute we were licensed, they said, this, the call came, who should we serve? And I said, well, I'm fully licensed. I can serve you or we can. And that's how it started. Gotcha. Okay. So now we're in business, right? I want to, for our audience, go behind the curtain a bit and learn a little bit about what goes on in the back room and down in the basement and all that sort of thing. So first, you know, you you guys in your line of work, obviously you meet people for the, you know, a lot of times at the most emotionally fraught moment in their lives. So how do you deal with that the first time you're confronted with it? Do, what kind of training do you have to go through? to be able to meet meet that situation i think it's it's a natural compassion and that's kind of what falls under what my friend was telling me whatever it is i had it and deborah has it as well mm-hmm. so when we get a call we are genuinely compassionately concerned for the family We know it's a tender, uh, difficult challenge, and 
we accept that. The, the most difficult part for us is accidental notification of death of one of our friends, because sometimes we know them by nickname, but when right. we show up, it's it's them and all their families there who are our friends. That's the most challenging. And what I was going to say to address that is that we're a little bit different. We um, we do our own removals. So we actually meet the family right there when they are needing to let their loved ones go. And right. so we 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 do some particular things that address the family's needs. And um, and so we we bond right there at the time shortly after the death. And so when we then later on make arrangements, we already have that connection with them. And so it's really a continuity. And like Ron said, I think a lot of it is is in our nature. I mean, we're ver- we're both very nurturing. Um, we try to be kind and compassionate, and and it's not something that we put on. It's it's a genuine thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask let me ask you about that whole situation. You know, not everybody passes you know quietly in their bed with their loved ones at their side. And it's all kind of a um, as, as neat as that situation can be. Other folks drop right where they are, and they can be laying there for days or weeks, maybe before they're discovered. This happened in my own life with an uncle. You know, uh, he was gone for a few days, and we went into his apartment, and there he was on the kitchen floor. And th- there are other people then too who uh, are victims of violence and. So when you walk in, well, talk to me about the first time you encounter something like that, where it's a really messy situation and how you deal with that in your own head, you know, um, because that's pretty jarring. And, you know, I can tell you, having been in a situation, that's a smell you never forget um, and a, a scene you never forget. Time for a break. We'll be back with more of our conversation right after this. Drew Zagorski here. Looking for a home loan? There's only one name you need to know. Teresa Springer of Movement Mortgage. Teresa brings decades of experience in lending, so she and her dedicated team will get you the right loan for your specific needs and probably save you a bundle of time and money in the process. How do I know? She's been my mortgage maven for years. So no matter where you live, if you're looking for a home loan, call Teresa Springer and the Mavens at Movement Mortgage at 360-798-4161. Or get the ball rolling by going to TeresaSpringer.com forward slash you don't say and clicking on the yellow get started button. Again, that number is 360-798-4161. 4161 and the website is teresaspringer.com forward slash you don't say. Phonetically, that's there's a springer.com forward slash you don't say. Teresa Springer, NMLS 70667. Movement Mortgage LLC supports equal housing opportunity. NMLS ID 39179. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Movement Mortgage LLC is licensed by California Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act number 4131054, Oregon ML 5081, Washington CL-39179. Interest rates and products are subject to change without notice and may or may not be available at the time of the loan commitment or lock-in. Borrowers must qualify for all benefits. Movement Mortgage is a registered trademark of the Movement Mortgage LLC, a Delaware limited liability company. Phew! Well, the, the, the unique thing, the down in the basement, what goes on, what we've kind of learned over the years, when we go to a situation where the police are there, 
because mm-hmm. if if a person's out on hospice, 911 has to be called and the police respond. And my telltale sign is when we arrive and the police says, okay, we got another call, we got to go. We know we're walking into a very, very difficult situation, mm-hmm. both in the condition of the deceased and the surrounding. And sometimes you just suck it up, you breathe deep, and you just do it. And, and there, we've, we've seen and done about everything. And Deborah talked to, mentioned earlier how we do our own transportation. So we've only had to use our backup transportation probably 15 times in 13 years. Mm-hmm. So we're, we've, Deborah and I have removed a couple thousand people. Right. And in all scenarios that you just mentioned, we can't describe those. Right. But when you go in your head, one time I ran to the bathroom several times expecting to let yeah. go of everything. Right. Because it was that bad. And and, and you, ju- you just cope. Right. Well, and- for, for me, I, I purposely focus on the family. I just focus on what does a family need right then. And so I, I go there in my head and then in my heart. And we've had enough challenges in our life that we, we know somewhat the degree of what heartbreak is. And so um, I think that's how, how we cope. And I think we're a little bit more mature. You know, we're not, co- we're not in our 20s that, are, that haven't had enough experience with death. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, Deborah, what, like the first time you came into a situation like that, now, I mean, after years of doing it, obviously, you, you're, you have a tool set that you go to. But the first time, what kind of reaction did you have? You know, uh, again, well, again, you know, uh, we're we're a family of faith. I, I really pray. I, I pray for for extra guidance and I pray for extra strength, and and I get it. So that's really my answer. Is that a lot of times it's it's beyond myself. You know, someone else is helping um, be that instrument. So, and I think that's really the only way that we can do a lot of the things that we do is that we get we get extra help. Now, assuming the deceased is is having a traditional burial and walk us through the process from intake to i guess visitation or wake and what is the process that you guys go through in terms of picking the body up then bringing it back and preparing it and what does that all look like uh well like we we do our own removals so we know what what the family wants uh, actually, in Oregon, Pacific Northwest, it's about 80% cremation, no services. So uh, unlike the Midwest and East, they don't have the traditional funeral services that maybe you would be familiar with 10, 15 years ago. So we, we deal with a lot of, we do a lot of um, funeral services, uh, but we, we work with people who have decided that they don't want a service we do the the transport. We actually will come back before COVID. We actually would come back and to the family's home and make mm-hmm. the arrangements because that's where it's more peaceful. They're more sure. calm. They don't feel like they're going to be upsold. They don't have to walk. And what people tell us is, oh, thank goodness we don't have to walk into a creepy funeral home where we're going to have to walk past all these caskets and we're going to have to be um, 
sold something right. that we didn't. in my in my opening comments i referred to that i i told you uh deborah when we originally talked i did some work for another funeral uh-huh. uh home here in the area to some branding stuff in my research for that i actually walked into several different funeral homes in portland just to get a sense of you know i i made a story you know my mom's getting old and mm-hmm. we're, we're, and it was like exactly like you said it's like a a, a car lot you like yeah. here's the showroom here's the catalog yeah. and and now to i have to to also clarify that these that i went to were corporate owned which right. is a lot of the industry now i believe right. Um, very few people are doing it like you guys. So, you know, they're, they're trying to get their numbers for corporate sales and all that kind of stuff. And it was not a happy feeling. I just thought when I was going through that, like if I was really in grief, this is the last thing I'd want to have to experience. And, you know, the guy I was working with, you know, him, um, he does the same thing. He'll come to your home and work with you there. So, you know, what I'm curious about is what happens to all of the preparation that you do. Obviously, you're draining blood and you're embalming if you're doing that kind of a thing. What happens to all of that biological material? It's a subtle way to say it. <laughs> so, um, so, first of all, embalming is not required by law. We okay. really don't advocate it because it's pretty invasive. Um, so, so, the difference there. Deborah and I personally have seen every deceased that we serve so that we have that personal experience and can talk to them about their loved one that's real. Right. Versus there's a trend now where the funeral director never sees the body because of the staff. And so we start at that point and we tell the family, we're not here to transact business. Right. That will happen, but we want to make sure you are okay, that you have support, that you're eating properly and get set yourself up for some rest, and then we'll talk to you in a day or so. Right. And so that takes a lot of the stress away. And then, then we go right into where Deborah says, now, embalming is not required by law. In yesteryear, the reason why bombing was required is no funeral homes had refrigeration. So embalming w- was scientifically right. required just to preserve the deceased. Okay. So, so well, you're not necessarily doing that anymore, maybe in some cases. Homes, yeah. There are other funeral homes that do. Um, we only do embalming if, uh, if they're going to be uh, transported via the airlines, because airlines okay. do require embalming. Um, we just, we just very tenderly uh, prepare the body, uh, close the eyes, the mouth, bathe them. Um, but back to your question in terms of what do you do with the, the biohazard. So the facility that we use is First Call Mortuary Services, and they are licensed to the state of Oregon. And then they, they have all the equipment and all of the procedures of how to um, eliminate uh, or process those biological fluids that you're referring to. Okay. We don't, we don't do it. We, we subcontract that part out. Okay. So another question is, does it differ um, in terms of somebody who's doing a burial versus 
a different person who you're giving their last chance to have a smoking hot body or their last chance to go into the hot tub mm-hmm. um, for cremation um, because you do it both ways. So is there a difference in terms of how you prepare the body or, or not? It really depends on what the family wants. If they want a viewing, then we will prepare the body before uh, either for a funeral service or for burial. Um, like I said, Portland is like 80% cremation. Mm-hmm. When when we transport them, they sign the paperwork for cremation. The person's cremated. We personally we return the cremated remains. So it is not as much as it was maybe 10 years ago. But we will we will talk to the family in terms of what do they need, what do they want, what has been their funeral culture in the past. A lot of people, this is the first time that they've done this. And so we kind of outline what what they need or what they don't need. And they get the sense real fast that we are not there to sell them and that we are there to care for them. So preparation is dependent on what the family needs. And then, and then there's years of experience and wisdom. Uh, I had a, a family that we served and he was a, a homicide detective and that was his career. And then his son had a major difficult death. And in my visit with him over and over again, he did not want to see his son at all. And I told him, you need to see your son because Mm -hmm. you have seen so many disasters. You're going to always assume it's worse than what it really is. And, And he chose not to see him. But then... A couple of years later, he said, you were so right. I should have seen him Mm. because I can't get all those other visions out of my mind. Yeah. And and that's the kind of experience we have when we sit down with a family is we we really explore what their needs are and ask them what their family culture has always been, what their what new culture they're created for the family that follows them. And when we consult with that, then they're more at peace. Right. And they know when they make a decision, the next question is, okay, five years from now, are you going to be pleased with that decision? And then they will spontaneously change their mind. Okay. Yeah. And that, that kind of goes into my next question is I know, and having had the brief encounters that I've had with Deborah through the through our local chamber, the, that I I know you guys do a whole lot of different things in terms of um, memorial services and celebration of life and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of it, sometimes I get the sense is outside the box. So talk to me about the most memorable or bizarre send-offs you guys have had to put together for people. Oh my gosh, I've done a, a burial, a casketed burial at sea off the Oregon coast. That was definitely different. Okay. And it, it was a friend. So that was more difficult. And uh, gosh, we've just done so many. Tell the story about the funeral that we did where COVID required restrictions. Yeah. So we've had to be very, very innovative. And so the state at the time would not allow um, for graveside services any more than 25 people. And so this was a very large family. We had to figure out how we could get the family 
close enough to the graveside that they would feel like they're participating. So fortunately, it was a field right next to the cemetery. So we had the mother designate how many family members could be part of that 25 that's right there by the casket. And then the other family members, we actually pulled the cars in like drive-in style. And then we had our large sound system. So they got to see and then hear the graveside service. Um, so that was that was one of them. Um, we've done, Ron has taken the Harley Hearse. Um, we delivered cremated remains. The, the decedent was a woman who um, rode motorcycles until she got ill. So the family really wanted her. But she was in her 90s and rode a motorcycle until she's 88. Nice. So, so we did the procession. Uh, the family followed. Uh, they took the urn and then they went on a, a boat and then scattered her um, cremains out in the ocean. Uh, we've done we've done home funerals um, where we've taken the body back to uh, the so, home. So this was this particular service. The death had occurred, and then the the state's COVID restrictions kicked in right then. Mm -hmm. the day after the death and this family had planned this big funeral and suddenly they couldn't have it because the churches were closed and sure so we just flipped it into a home funeral and they scheduled everybody to come over a two or it was an all-day period and all their friends could come by assigned time slots and they gotcha. would come and go and they still have this wonderful service. Right. So let me ask about that. The whole in-home thing, you know, back in the old days, that's what they did. Exactly. You know, exactly. grandma or grandpa was laid out in the living room and that's where yeah. they did the wake and all of that kind of stuff. Are yeah. you seeing a trend towards going back to that sort of thing? Uh, as, as comfortable as people feel to have a, their loved one uh, in their home. Um, yes. I did a training down in California several years ago uh, to become a deaf midwife. And that was training for home funerals. You know, the baby boomers are trying to circumvent funeral homes because of the expense. So we've been trained to be able to allow people and advocate for people to keep their loved one at home. And basically it's using dry ice. We, we kind of educate them. It's, we call it a family directed home funeral um, simply because it really needs to come from the family. The family needs to come to us and say, I want, I want my loved one at home. Right. And, and we've done several of those. We've done um, several Hindu um, services. As a matter of fact, I got a call yesterday from a hospital that said this, the wife is really having a very, very difficult time. Um, the, her husband died. We don't know what to do. Can you arrange, can you transport the body home so that she can be with him for a while in the family. And so, you know, we outlined what, what we need to do. And so, um, so to answer your question, uh, yes, we're seeing more home funerals only as people understand that they can do it. Cause a lot of people think that it's not, it's, it's illegal. And we try right. to educate people that it, it is, it is legal. And, you know, just by having this podcast, you're able, you are able to educate people that they can do these kind of things. Yeah. And is that that the type of thing that, you know, we're here in the Portland area, uh, people listening all over the country. Is that something that they can do 
through just any funeral home or is it something that's a specialty kind of service? So if they go to uh, the National Home Funeral Alliance, their website, they we'll will put list that in the episode notes that state by state what funeral homes are home funeral friendly and they can they can find a funeral home that way or they can just call their local funeral home and say do you do home funerals and they're going right. to get you know they're going to get the answer right then you're listening to you don't say we'll be right back with our conversation right after this you know Aren't there enough things that cost an arm and a leg when you're running a business? There's really no reason you should be spending five grand or more for a website unless it's doing some pretty whiz-bang stuff. With Squarespace, you don't have to, even with some whiz-bang. With plans starting as low as 12 bucks a month for a personal website, Squarespace has a library of professionally designed templates to start from with easy-to-use tools that let you customize your site to fit your brand. So get that site going today. Just go to youdon'tsay.net, look for the Squarespace logo on the homepage, click on it, and when you check out, put in the code PARTNER10, again, that's PARTNER10, you'll save 10% off your first subscription on a website or a domain. And if you need help with your site, drop Left Brain Right Brain Marketing a call at lbrbm.com. Squarespace, it's the shortest, most cost-effective distance between here and success. And so typically, what does that look like in terms of a timeline? I, you know, I... I assume that they have the casket and the body in the home for some period of time. What's that period of time like? So it, it can be a couple of days. They don't necessarily have to have a casket. You know, they can have, we've used our massage table and um, it can be as, as varied as they want. The nice thing about it is if they want to be cremated, then they can, we can provide them with a cardboard casket and then people can come in and write notes. Mm -hmm. Children can draw pictures. That's cool. um, it's very, very cathartic. Um, so we help them prepare the body in terms of. I'd, I'd be kind of afraid what they might, what my buddies might draw on mine, though. Well, well have to... we have seen some very <laughs> interesting. <laughs> and I, I was in rural Western, or I, I don't remember the city or the cemetery's name, but it was a church service. And then we took the casket to the cemetery, and it was open game for all the friends. And there was bumper stickers and stickers of all kinds and written slang. And, and I remember looking at the mom, and she just covered her face and turned right. around. I said, right. I, I have to acknowledge that was part of his life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a funeral here that I was aware of through the guy I mentioned earlier, he, the, the, the old, old fellow that passed away was a rancher, a farmer rancher. And so he would always have parties, I guess. And, you know, so that was his thing. They had a, like a, a straightforward wooden casket on a couple of bales of hay and they had a party. Yeah. They had a hoedown. <laughs> we love that. We love that idea. We tell people to be as creative as they can and if they're choosing cremation and we say, look, if you have an if something in your home that you could use as an urn, by all means, go for it. We had one person that she was a Winnie the Pooh. And so when we walked in, there were like Winnie the Pooh all over. And we were telling them that. And she had a, a Winnie the Pooh cookie jar. So that cookie jar became an urn. 
And so we right. said, the more creative, the better. <laughs> well, one guy restored coffee urns, the antique uh-huh. ones. And so his urn was his prize coffee urn. Gotcha. Very valuable too, but... And I've had cremated remains placed in a big mortar shell because the guy was a military man. Okay. Uh, one guy was a trucker. And so the children went to a truck stop and bought one of those big toy trucks. Uh-huh. And he is the, in the trailer of that truck and the grandchildren drive him around the house. <laughs> nice. Nice. And, well, and they're you know. Happy. One of the things I told my daughters is when I die, I want to be cremated. I'm, I'm, I'm a bibliophile. I read like crazy. So I said, I'm going to make a, a list of 50, a hundred books. I want you to take a little bit of ash, my ashes, go to the library, check the book out and put a little bit of my ash in the book binding and then check it back into the library. Yeah. That, that so, wouldn't go over too well. Yeah. Well, I just, I, I just love the vi- visual of somebody opening that book and I spill into their lap. And they will never forget that name of that book ever. So we, we do just the opposite. We recommend when we're meeting with people in the, you know, in arrangement, we say, okay, what kind of things would you like to have cremated with your mm-hmm. loved one? And they kind of go, what? And, and they, they said, well, this isn't the Egyptian times. And we said, we know, but you know, again, they're not going to have a service, but we're trying to help them think of ways they can memorialize. And right. so from, they, they go from what? To, oh, you know, we could do this. Or, yeah, he loved to do crossword puzzles, so we'll put crossword puzzles. And it kind of grows. And then we got a call back, and they said, well, how much is too much? How can how much can we put with them that's going to be too much cremated? We said, you can put anything except no firecrackers. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but we did just recently place popcorn, popcorn. with somebody. Yeah. Okay. So we have a great time, and this really gets people to laugh. Yeah. to be humorous oh, and really find yeah. the human part of their loved one and take a very, very serious moment and really reflect um, on some, on some um, really special things that, that are with their loved one. Right. So let me ask you this with all these requests that people might have after you kind of get them talking about it and, you know, has there ever been a request that was just like beyond the pale that you're like, we can't, I mean, forget about the legal part of it. A recliner chair. Someone wanted a recliner chair. And they got it. (laughs) We had to break the chair down to fit. But right now, the big one that we just can't do just because of the cost, it could be arranged as a Viking funeral. Okay. With the person in a boat, they would... And they want the body, but that cannot happen. But the person can be pre-cremated and placed in a paper mache body form there you and go. put in the canoe. Huh. Now you got me thinking. I know. We've, <laughs> we've got more ideas than. Uh, that would be my fantasy to carry out one of those Viking services. Right. Well, um, I know b- back in the day in Chicago, I think I want to say this was like late 80s, a notorious drug dealer pimp was gunned down. Willie the Wimp was the guy's street name. Mm-hmm. And he had his casket customized to look like a, a Cadillac. Uh-huh. And so he was sitting up and had the steering wheel and all his bling on. And I just, and I never forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> that would be unforgettable. Yeah, there's, 
you know, it's all unique. The, the reason why we can think outside the box and carry complicated things out is we know the laws and what we're restricted by, what mm-hmm. we as funeral directors can and cannot do. Right. So let's talk about some of those. I mean, I know we talked about cremation and we know you do the flame, you know, fire cremation. You're also doing this new thing with aqua cremation. How does that work? So uh, aqua cremation is the newer eco-friendly. It uses water and uh, alkali and we call it the uh, ultimate jacuzzi. Uh, and actually there's a, there's an article a lot of people don't know about it, but the Mercury newspaper did an article back in uh, May of ni- 2019. Um, and then we got a lot of people wanting to know more. And then KATU did a, a, a little article about uh, aqua cremation. Uh, for Portland, it's really popular because of the whole environmental mm-hmm. uh, awareness. Uh, and basically, it's just instead of having your body consumed by fire uh it's uh, literally melted away you still have the skeletal remains um and then those are processed the same way so you get you get cremated remains you get a little bit more because uh, the bones aren't incinerated through traditional flame Mm -hmm. and uh and it's a more gentle a little bit more respectful for some people who you know cost is a big thing about burial versus cremation um they opt for cremation, and this is especially for spouses that they will they like the aqua cremation because the thought of of burning their loved one is really is difficult, but they don't mind um, the water. Right. Now, does it take you know, longer? It takes a little bit longer, but really not that much longer. Okay. Then you're also doing um, you're able. You can bury folks not necessarily in a cemetery, right? With a natural burial, and how does that all work? So natural or green burials, uh, what that is is there's no embalming. There's no. Uh, it's a biodegradable casket or a shroud. Uh, the whole idea is what you put into the earth is going to biodegrade, and it's going to return to the earth um, non-toxic uh, elements. And so there's a couple of cemeteries here. Most cemeteries require a grave liner. Um, And so for the idea that cemeteries like to have that park-like setting, uh, they require a grave liner. Uh, A natural burial does not not allow for a grave liner. And so um, you just need to find some of the cemeteries in the area that do allow natural burials. Uh, well, I'm at National Cemetery, actually, on a case-by-case burial, uh, base, will do a natural burial, but you have to ask. Again, right. as more and more people become aware of natural burial, um, we've done one. Uh, people ask, when I do a presentation, they'll say, well, can I bury on my property? Um, yes, you can. You have to get the planning commission's um, approval. You have to get a letter, and then you have to have a large enough um, property that so I tell people you you probably shouldn't do it in a subdivision in your sub in your front yard because that would the neighbors would have a problem with that. <laughs> so, kind of funny though. Be like, well, Halloween I might get time, a kick out of it. Well, at the Halloween time, the the um, the grave marker would be 
yeah. would be real. So anyway, yeah. we've done um, we've done some natural burials uh, up in Skyline, um, up in the hills, and uh, we actually needed our um, suburban uh, our this is private property. Up yeah, right. Four wheel drive to get actually down where they wanted the burial. Um, yeah, and so that was that was good. Um, now the process. I mean, you just can't get a letter from the planning commission of each county. You have to prove your capacity to have it. But the ground rule is if you ever sell the property, the buyers could require you to remove the grave, which is very expensive to disinter. And then you have to have a place where they go. And that can be very expensive. But this person had enough funds set aside in a trust to sustain the property within the family for several generations. So it was a no-brainer for approval. But residential, it'll never happen, you know, in a community just because of the turnover of property and the neighborhood dispute. Oh, hey, I've got a question. Go back to the cremation thing. My my mom has two artificial shoulders, two artificial hips, two artificial knees, and she's got six kids. So she's always said when she goes, we're each going to get one of her joints. There you go. If she does cremation, those artificial joints will be destroyed, right? Well, or those it, need to be taken out? Well, here's what happens. So it's, <laughs> no, they don't need to be removed. Only a pacemaker, only anything that has a battery that could explode in the crematory needs okay. to be removed. Mom, I hope you're listening. So, so, so aqua cremation, what happens is the joints then, you know, the, the tissue dissolves and you have the joints and they are actually so clean. They look pristine. They look like they okay. can almost be used again. So you could get one of your mother's joints if she used aqua cremation, you could make a necklace out of it. We've had some yeah. people want to do that. Um, yeah. the, the traditional flame, it is um, pretty well charred. If you request it, you can get it back. But most of the time it goes into a, um, into a recycle okay. area and then they donate the, uh, someone comes and picks them up and then they donate the, the, um, the uh, funds to, I think, Wounded Warrior. Okay. So it is, everything's well, recycled. So- my uncle is an RVer. He okay. travels a lot. And so I tease him that I'm going to collect all these joints from various cremations and I'm going to make him a wind chime so he can be carrying <laughs> his spare parts with him. There you go. Well, I was just going to say, I think I've got my mom's knee. So if I get a knee, I'm going to hold on to it in case I ever need a re- knee replacement and save a few bucks. It can never be reused. Though. <laughs> Damn. Damn it. It looks like it could. It's. I mean, it's that shiny. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So now talking about burials and cremations and all that other stuff, I know that um, you also, you you mentioned a midwifing and you're a doula. Talk to me about some of those other types of things that you and other people around the country might be able to offer. So end of life doulas, uh, you know, 40 or so years ago when the doula, uh, the word doula, it was associated with birthing. Right. So a birth and doula would help the mother, the family, the baby enter the world. Uh, 
So in a, briefly, there was a um, hospice social worker back in New York City that realized that hospice was not offering as much as they could for the family. And so he came up with the, con, uh, the model of a end-of-life doula. And so I love the idea that someone was there with the family walking by their side the whole way. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm doing a presentation next week uh, for end-of-life doulas. So I went ahead and I took the training, not necessarily to become an end-of-life doula, but to better understand it so that I can offer that or I can at least refer families to the end-of-life doulas um, in this area. And basically, they, they work with the family. It's, it's private pay. Um, hospice doesn't, uh, Medicare doesn't pay for it quite yet. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really, it's, it's working with the family to come up with like a, a care plan for the, the person that's dying in terms of what they want that death to look like. Uh, it works with the family in terms of doing some paperwork, you know, anything that needs to be done, the end of life doula can do. And then they come back, they, they sit vigil with the family and then they help the family because really those last few days can be very, very difficult. And then they're right there with the family, kind of guiding them, um, you know, being positive with them. And then they'll come back a few weeks after the death and they'll actually point out to the family, you know, I observed, you know, you were really, you did this so well and things that the family would not notice because they're so engulfed in that, sure. that moment. moment. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of times families will tell us, well, I didn't do it right. I feel guilty. This, that. Well, the end of life doula can help a family feel good about that whole process. And they can point out the good things that they did so that the family can have a better, a better experience with death. Um, and perhaps go into the next experience a little bit more confident. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, as we're kind of closing in any, any things that people should be thinking about um, now to make sure that they've got the right arrangements in place, they're taken care of. And so their family isn't in a scramble to try and figure out now what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of approaches. We we like um, on our website, it's called the talk of a lifetime, have the talk of a lifetime. And that really starts people thinking about not necessarily death, but their life. And then that allows families to ask um, certain questions, conversations about a person's life. And then it's more of a natural progression into, okay, so how do you want us to remember your life? You know, what what kind of service do you want? Um it really, it's about having that conversation and and thinking about what kind of legacy you want your family to remember you by. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's all about communication. It's about, again, you know, the, the, the podcast that you're doing, the presentations that I'm doing, the humor that I'm doing. Um, you know, I was going to explain to you that, you know, I'm and I know I'm getting off, off topic here, but I'm, I'm really an introvert. And so when I do networking, um, I have a hard time talking to people. I just don't do small talk. I, would, so I wouldn't I, have noticed. Well, what I noticed is that when I would introduce humor, then I was more approachable. And yeah. so this whole idea of um, cremation, your last best chance at a smoking hot body, you know, by Threadgills, that kind of came up simply because 
I wanted to be more approachable. And, and yeah. the more humor I introduce, the more approachable I am, the more questions people ask me, the more positive they understand the things that, that they can do or they, they want to do. So. Right. And, you know, I, in my opening comments, I talked about the, the neighborhood funeral home and the son of the, the undertaker. We went to the same school. He was a little bit older than me. And, uh-huh. you know, he always seemed kind of stiff and formal. And yeah. so yeah. did his dad, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and, um, it wasn't really until the other guy that I did some marketing work with here and yourself that like uh, this person is funny. They got a, they got a sense of humor. They're not, you know, always with their hands folded in front of them and stiff and unapproachable. So I think it's a good thing, you know, and I wish um, more undertakers had that kind of vibe to them because it's something that happens to everybody and we're all going to need ones sooner or later. So having one that's uh, easy to talk to and will approach things with empathy and compassion is a good thing. And I mean, all of them do, but you know, Well, and I think we're, we're Ron and I are very, very lucky. We feel very, very blessed um, in that we're the business owners, you know, we, and I know that a lot of um, funeral directors out there being employees, they, they have to, they have to account to, to a company, whereas right. we can, we can think outside the box. You know, we, we give ourselves permission to, to do things a little bit differently um, that will help people. So we, we are the first to admit how lucky we are to be in this business and to be the, to the owners that we can, we can do some of these things. Right. Okay. So as we wrap up here, have you ever watched um, the actor studio? I don't think so. Okay. Anyway, it's a, a program where they enter, uh, like the actor studio in New York, they bring in alumni and other actors and they do an interview. And at the end, they do a 10 question thing. And it's always the same 10 questions. And I'm going to try this for the first time with you. So you're lucky, okay. Deborah. Oh, so no. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you 10 As questions. If I wasn't already nervous. And uh, I'm just going to ask you, you answer them and we'll go on to the next question. So. All right. What's your favorite word? My favorite word, uh, uh, serendipity. What's your least favorite word? Hate. What turns you on? Uh, kindness. What turns you off? Uh, insincerity. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, oh, the sound of babies laughing. Okay. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, sarcasm. Okay. What's your favorite curse word? <laughs> I I don't swear. <laughs> well, what's your favorite curse word? Uh, hell. Okay. What profession other than your your own would you like to attempt? Uh, end of life doulas. What profession would you not like to do? Hmm. Salesperson. Okay. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well done, my faithful servant. There you go. So, right. um, Deborah, and I know Ron had to uh, go take, take a, a call. call. Um, I really appreciate you guys taking time to talk and share some information and make uh, death an 
Undertaker's less scary, less spooky, less ooky, a little bit more kooky. Um, I really appreciate that. And this is Drew Zagorski. You're listening to You Don't Say. Peace. Thanks for listening. If you have a story to tell, shoot me an email to info at youdontsay.net. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YDS Stories. Thanks again, and see you on the next episode.